Jazz. Welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 249. It's a special event where Mike is going to interview guitarist and composer Duck Baker. We've been trying to get Duck on our show since 2020, so we're excited that Mike got the opportunity to talk with him. Duck lives in England, and it was hard arranging schedules till Mike happened to be there himself. Please do enjoy. Groovy. So normally we start these and Pat says he's Mike and I say he's Pat or he says I'm Pat, he, you know, and I say I'm Mike, whatever. But um, for the time being, we're on uh, other sides of the Atlantic. And uh, today uh, I'm doing an interview. This is Mike and I'm doing an interview with jazz guitarist Duck Baker, whose work we have talked about on the program uh, before, and uh, it's a it's a thrill to be able to talk to you. I'm able to do this because Duck is in England and I'm in England, and we're in the same time zone, and we're about an hour apart, and so this works out real well. First of all, thanks for agreeing to do this, Duck. We couldn't be happier to have the chance to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure. I was very flattered when I—I uh, I don't know if you guys got in touch with me when you when you uh, you did a show about me and a couple of other guitarists, and I was very flattered that, that you compared me favorably to those other two guys. But <laughs> also that you, you really enjoyed the music—that made me feel good. I'm not strictly a jazz guitar I, I know i was going to get to that I, I that's that's you have many more strings to your instrument than just jazz guitar but yeah uh, could you just start by uh, well can you start with a simple thing here your name is not duck <laughs> <laughs> how did you get duck um, can you tell uh, everyone your is it okay well, to reveal your story to it when mm-hmm. uh, growing up in richmond or if your wife grew up in north carolina mind you the outer banks are kind of different but in the South, people routinely have nicknames. And, of course, in jazz, lots of people have nicknames. And there's at least two other duds. The drummer, oh, Donald, now what's his last name? Daggone it. He, he died not that many years ago and lived out in Oakland. It may come to me later. I'll figure it out. And then uh, is there a sax player that played in some of the late Basie bands named Sutherland or something like that? Hmm. No, Donald Sutherland is an actor. Yeah. Donald Harrison, maybe. Is mm. that a name of a Could be, could be. Book? Anyway, those guys are Donalds, but I got it just because some kid in the neighborhood decided I looked like a duck. <laughs> and he, we were all playing basketball. He said, you look like a duck. I'm going to call you duck from now on. Is that, is that okay with you, duck? And, of course, the other kids all laughed, and I thought, well, I've been called worse things, and so is the guy that's hanging his name on me, so I'm not going to worry about it. All right.
So as you mentioned, you are not strictly speaking a jazz guitarist. You've done lots and lots of other things. Can you just give us a, a little um, rundown on how you came to the music? Because you've done yeah. loads I mean, of other uh, stuff. When I was a kid, when I was real young, I saw a woman and came to the kindergarten class dressed up as a gypsy and she played the violin. She was probably playing that kind of restaurant style of virtuosity. Anyway, I was thrilled with that, and so I wanted to play it, but they gave me violin lessons. If they'd have given me fiddle lessons, I probably would have stuck with it, but violin lessons bored me. <laughs> and then when I was uh, 14, I guess, my dad gave me a ukulele for, for my birthday, and uh, I started from there. Quite a lot of guitars, it turns out. That's how they started. Chet Atkins uh, was one of the ukulele, and then graduated guitar. So uh, then I had a guitar, and the first thing I wanted after I, you know, learned the basics, I wanted to get an electric guitar. Me and some friends started a, uh, a rock band, which fortunately was never re recorded, not while I was in it. And um, um, about about what year is this, around this, when this is happening? 63. Okay. 63. Yeah, the Beatles were just coming on the radio. And a kid sat next to me in biology class, played in a band, and he, he broke down the chords to... Uh, I want to hold your hand. No, the other one. What was the other big hit? Their first big hit. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess it was I want to hold your hand. Yeah. Because that's a strange chord progression for a rock song. Anyway, so I then started playing in rock bands. But at the same time, the, the sort of folk scare was going on. And I was interested in that. And I was watching a guy on TV, a local guy who was playing with his fingers, and I kind of figured out what he was doing and picked up the guitar and started playing these patterns. It was easy to do that. So I, so then I realized within about three months I could play everything that, you know, the kind of guitar players like uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and, and Bob Dylan. It's not hard to play those patterns. So then, of course, um, I started going to the coffee houses in, in Richmond, Virginia, and there were some older kids that were playing more interesting things. A very talented kid named Larry McCullough had a great touch for blues. But he was getting more interested in electric blues, so he joined our band. And I got more interested in trying to play different kinds of things, blues. But also, uh, I, there was a guy in Richmond at that time, and by now we're talking about 1965, whose name was uh, Buck Evans, and he was a couple of years older than me, and he actually played ragtime. People know about ragtime nowadays because it, it, it got a real big comeback starting in 1970 when Joshua Rifkin made his first record for uh, Nonsuch. And that approach then got sort of uh, canonized, but that wasn't really the way ragtime sounded. Mm -hmm. uh, some people want to pretend that it was. I, I like Joshua Rifkin's interpretations very much, but ragtime did have more funk to it than that. Anyway, so I was then, uh, I was very impressed with this guy, and I was then trying to play ragtime by ear, and then playing, you know, tunes like Sweet Georgia Brown. Buck lived very near me, and sometimes he'd have parties, and there was uh, there was an older black guy that played barrel house piano that came along. I, I hate to admit it, but alcoholic beverages were consumed. <laughs> anyway, so that, that was... And at the same time, then, I, I guess it was when I was about 15, the other kids in the rock bands were listening to Jimmy Smith and stuff. We thought that was very cool. Well, it was very cool. And then I uh, listened to the Jazz Crusaders, but I sort of had to come back to them later to really get what they were doing. 
but one day I just said, I'm going to go and listen to this Thelonious Monk. Everybody talks about this guy. I want to hear what he sounds like. And his new record at that point was a Columbia record called Mysterioso, mm-hmm. which was a collection of various live things, you know, 60s with, with Rouse and the band. And I took that home, and I mean, it took probably 30 seconds for me to say, wow. It, it communicated something to me that almost no other music had. Maybe Ray Charles. I really, he, even before I was playing guitar, I was in love with, with Ray Charles. I still am. I'm amazed by Ray Charles. But Monk really did it for me. And of course, you know, I, I knew right away I couldn't just play that by ear. That at some point I'd have to figure out a little more to it. But that, you know, that's sort of the way things were moving. I was trying to play ragtime. And a couple of years later, I think 67, I met an old, I had, my girlfriend was a few years older than me and had been in Canada and wanted to go back. Uh, she didn't think Richmond, Virginia was fit for human habitation. <laughs> and I had other reasons for wanting to go to Canada. And so uh, <laughs> at some point then she left and I went after that was 1968. But when we met, she, uh, she was lent me some of her records and she had some real good stuff. She had Archie Shep's four for train, mm-hmm. which I had not heard. I had not heard any real free jazz. Right. And there is a little on that record. I still think it's one of his best records. But Roswell Rudd was on that record. And so I started listening. I thought this stuff is really great. So then I was looking for jazz records. You know, I bought a Coltrane record. I think it was the one called Impressions. And Mm -hmm. Eric Dolphy was on that. So then I bought an Eric Dolphy record. And because Roswell Rudd and Sean Shakai were on Four for Train, uh, I was going down to this record store that was African-American record store and i was buying records because you could buy records all over the place you could buy records they had a camera store in richmond that had a real good blues section hmm. for black people hmm. and i mean jesus you could buy elmore james records in the food line i don't think it was called the food anyway in a big grocery store right right so anyway I, because i had heard roswell and john shakai on the four for train I bought a record called the New York Art Quartet, and I said, this stuff is, a, is the goneest stuff I've ever heard. And then I was in another place, like a, it was like a, a boutique. Right. I had saris and things for the hippie girls and, and uh, wicker chairs. And uh, if they had a license for it, they would have sold Afghan hounds. But anyway, they <laughs> sort of hidden under the saris was a one box full of records. And, I found this thing that was like the heliocentric worlds of Sun Ra. Oh, Actually, yeah. Before oh, I heard yeah. the New York Guard Quartet. <laughs> I picked this thing. It was volume two. He had his picture on there next to Tycho Brahe. And all he said, <laughs> yeah. what the hell is this? And it said, you've never heard such sounds in your life. And it did have a picture of Ornette Coleman. And by that time, I knew who he was. I said, God, this record costs $4. All the other records cost $3. I said, but I'm going to have to buy this. <laughs> and so I got it home, and I said, yeah, no, I never heard sounds like this. But, <laughs> so I was coming at jazz from Ragtime and Joey Roll Morton. And, in fact, I was going out with a French girl for a little while whose father introduced Joey Roll Morton, Alan Lomax. Well, Sidney Martin was his name. Lomax mentioned him in the book. Wow.
So, so uh, the progression is finger picking, you know, guitar to ragtime to monk. So, monk is your gateway drug, really. <laughs> well, as far as a listener, and I, but I had no idea how to. Actually, some of the other guys that were a couple of years older than me knew how to play a real simple version of blue monk. Mm. And so I learned their version, and then over the years added a few more things that make it a little bit more honestly monkish. But yeah, and then so what was happening was I was also then into the actual free jazz. And when I heard Sonny Sharrock on the first Pharaoh um, Sanders Impulse record, mm-hmm. I said, well, I can do that. I can do something like that anyway. And so then I was trying to, you know, approach it. And then I was trying to play lines that were just things that I heard. And I'd try and I'd, so I sort of built up a vocabulary of licks that were sort of free and picked up some things by ear and so on. But it was years later that, that I learned how to play swing and then applied that to more modern jazz. Right, right. Um, we went, the first jazz festival I went to, and this is amazing, was in Hampton, Virginia. Hampton University was, it was like Fisk. It was one of the early, early African-American universities. And a lot of stuff went on there. And they had this jazz festival. In those days, it was a real jazz festival. I think for a long time, it still calls itself a jazz festival, but we would not consider that many of the acts to be serious jazz. It'd be like smooth jazz, I guess. Anyway, that year, uh, Shep was coming. Uh, Monk was there. Dizzy was there. The Adderleys were there. Jimmy Smith was there. <laughs> and when we walked in, it was an act that I wasn't really... We were walking in because Shep or somebody else was playing next. It was Herbie Mann, and mm. the guitar player who was taking the solo was Sonny Shara. Oh, I said, that's wow. the guy that played with with uh, Pharaoh. I, I never have figured that out because for all the people that liked Herbie Mann, <laughs> what is this guitar player doing? They hated it. Anyway, uh, so I got, did get to see Sonny Shara. Anyway, so then... It all went from there. Um, I moved up to uh, Vancouver in 1968 and spent a year there until I got my draft situation figured out. And I had a brief contact with a very interesting avant-garde piano player named Al Neal. Is that a name you know? It isn't. It is not. Who's he played with? Or who's? Well, he was a Canadian out there in Vancouver. So, you know, he was playing on the scene, but the only... Yeah, nobody else out there, nobody on that scene in Vancouver in those days ever got to be known. You know, Sonny Greenwich and people in, in the eastern part of Canada did. Al Neal made uh, an excellent jazz and poetry record with Ken Patchen. Kenneth Patchen was reading, mm-hmm. and the Al Neal quartet was playing backup. It's, you know, basically bebop. But by this time, Al had, had kind of freaked out and uh, was playing some very outside stuff. There's not many recordings that really show how how uh, what it was like, but it was very exciting to be there. Anyway, he hired me into his band and then got mad at me and fired me before we ever played a gig. <laughs> <laughs> Typical experience for young jazz guys. But, but this was like outside stuff. Mm-hmm. He was excited because I said, he said, no, you sound like that guy on the Pharaoh Sanders record. Uh-oh. <laughs> Ultimately, my, my my first wife couldn't stay in Virginia, so we moved to San Francisco. And then I hooked up with people playing swing. I uh, learned how to do that. And the, it's sort of like if you're coming from a folk background, because I could play 
sort of play that stuff. I could even sort of play blues, but I didn't want to copy the other blues guys. And I actually, Buck Evans, piano player, told me, he said, you can't sing blues, <laughs> which was a good thing. And when I sang like Doc Watson's songs, he said, well, you should sing that stuff. I said, yeah, but I want to play blues. He said, well, it's all the same music. And I think I took that much more literally than Buck ever intended, because I still think it's all the same music. Mm. I think Doc Boggs and Ross Holcomb playing Appalachian music is the same music as Cecil Taylor. Right. Right. And the fact that I play different ends of it still and still try to learn from it. People don't think it's weird that Julian Breen plays medieval music and then turns around and plays 20th century music. You know, it was written maybe even by Elliot Carter, but certainly by Britain and people like that. So that's what I do. all those things inform each other. That's a really good analogy because it, it seems weird to say this, but um, so often in classical music, no one really, if you're, if you're playing, you know, early period music, and then you also, you know, want to play, you know, Baroque or Romantic or whatever, no one bats an eye. And uh, if you're a jazz player, sometimes it seems like if you, you know, get outside of one stream or another, people kind of look askance at you, you know, or they, if you do something that's not strictly jazz. So that's kind of interesting. Did you find, I think it's kind of interesting that you ended up in um, San Francisco playing swing, of all things, in the late 60s. I mean, you're there at the same time as the Grateful Dead and all that stuff is going on. What was well, that like? No, it was 1973 by the time we got to, to uh, uh, San Francisco. I, I did play in psychedelic bands in Richmond, Virginia. In fact, the first review I ever got was for this band. I, I wasn't mentioned by name. And some Richmond, Virginia, 1960, I guess it was, maybe it was 68 by then. I don't care, I can't remember if it was 67 or 68. Mm-hmm. But this R- Richmond, Virginia journalist, uh, Whip came and reviewed our psychedelic band, which was called the Actual Mushroom, <laughs> and said that the band sounded like a streetcar screeching to a halt. <laughs> so I'm still kind of proud of that. I dug it up the other day. Uh, but yeah, by the time I got to San Francisco, I mean, I was losing interest in rock and roll. The last, the last rock and roll record I bought new was Jimi Hendrix's first record. Mm. And that's in part because the hippies discovered him during the Summer of Love. And and then later that year, I mean, you couldn't go into somebody's pad where there was hippies, which was all the pads I was going into, really. And they were just playing that record over and over and over again. And I got tired of it. But, I mean, I you know, yeah, Hendrick's still fine with me. But I just, I, I was, all right, this, this is the thing. When I was thinking about what Buck Evans was telling me, you can't sing blues but you can sing like a Doc Watson song. And what I felt like was you're a white middle-class kid. You've got nothing 
behind you, except for your mother playing uh, out of the fireside book of folk songs and Episcopal hymns, which are not like Holy Roller hymns. Right. And I want to play something that's not the Beach Boys. So I'm going to have to go and try as hard as I can to do all these other things. Hmm. And that, that was my approach. It's always been my approach. Right. One of the things I've uh, really appreciated, you shared a bunch of your music with me, and um, I, I have to say you are one of the um, – when you write your own liner notes, you are one of the better explainers, historiographers of your own process and your own your own time and place and so forth. And I've learned more from reading your liner notes uh, probably than I could ever uh, dig up uh, on my own. Um, it, it, the arc of your career is kind of fascinating because you're sort of in San Francisco and then you, you begin to have these other interests that are into increasingly out and abstract stuff. You, you have other interests besides those, but you become a kind of, you're connected, uh, really early with some of these giants of, you know, abstract music you did really early work with john zorn before john zorn was really well known by any and then you end up eventually in england and you connect with people like Derek bailey how does that how does that all come about like what's the arc of the Um, career actually this is this is worth talking about now you know when i got to san francisco and i was playing in a bluegrass band and then i was learning swing but the importance of learning swing is at that point i started to understand how how modern jazz was structured Hmm. And I started to understand the theories. And I could listen to Monk and say, well, he's just basically he's he's fucking with all those chords. Right. And he's, uh, he's adding all kinds of notes. And then eventually, you know, you get what is going on. You can you can apply swing both to bebop and to post-bop. Either that's the harmonic framework. It just becomes more advanced. At one point then I was, my marriage broke up, my first one. There was another one that broke up, too. But anyway, I I was on the road and I was going through Canada. Um, This is kind of interesting, too. When I mentioned that my first wife knew a lot about jazz, she had a friend that was having a relationship with a man named John Norris. John Norris was an Englishman who lived in Toronto who started Coda Magazine. Hmm. And Coda Magazine is very likely the best print magazine that ever was for jazz in, in North America. So I met John quite early on, and then I was up there visiting for reasons that, that have nothing to do with music. And uh, they said, oh, there's an interesting guitar player playing. You should come down. And it was Eugene Chadbourne. Hmm. So I met Eugene, and we set it up the next day, and we went over and played together, and we were both impressed. Now, the thing about Eugene Chadbourne is realize Eugene Chadbourne has been out there being Eugene Chadbourne for such a long time that people, a lot of people don't realize that his first couple of records that were just solo things, were really amazing records. They were really advanced, an advance on, say, Derek Bailey. And at that time, there was hardly anybody even playing free jazz on guitar. Mm. There was nothing except for Sonny Cher. So anyway, yeah, Eugene and I then became friends, and we started. So it was probably 1977, wasn't it, Mm. that that I went out and, and we did some guitar trio performances with Randy Hutton, who was a friend of his. And uh, so these were these things with, with Eugene's scores that were pretty weird. Mm-hmm. You know, some of it would be music, but mostly it was instructions or you say, okay, we're going to make noises like this at this point. 
and other things. And he also wrote like wines. We learned a few of those. Chad Bourne is, was a guy that was like younger than I am. On He was younger than everybody at that time, but he was always very positive, direct personality and a guy that got things done. So then he moved the next year to New York. And as chance would have it, not much long, not long after that, I moved to Philadelphia. And I didn't really connect with the Philadelphia scene much, but I did... Um, since I was near New York, Eugene said, well, you should come up. you got to meet this guy, John Zorn. He's the new thing. He's ahead of everybody. And so I did. And I went up there, and, and that's how I was there at the beginning of the downtown uh, scene in New York. And you're right. I mean, it's an exciting time to have been a musician in a way because it was also Eugene, for instance, that gave me Derek's phone number and Steve Beresford's phone number, the piano player that still lives in London. And so I hooked up somewhat with those people, also in the late 70s, because after we were in Philadelphia, we moved to London. So that's how all that stuff came about. Eugene brought everybody to John uh, and talked, not everybody. I think John knew Larry Oakes uh, in, in California, the guy from Rova. But it was also, Eugene was the guy that, that introduced Davey Williams and LaDonna Smith and people around to John Zorn, and, and uh, he was just going around. He was always just a dynamo, unstoppable force of a very strange kind. Right. Uh, and I will say that John and uh, Eugene playing duo was a phenomenal thing to actually see live. I did see one of their gigs. And then, of course, with Polly, who at that point, Polly Bradfield, who was John's girlfriend, that was a hell of a trio. Right. Yeah. So, you know, then a few years later, of course, John Zorn was, like, famous. Yeah. Because after I played those gigs, I said, well, so I'm going up here and playing, like, that stuff that's on that fencing record. Mm-hmm. Which, anyways, the hardest music I've ever played in my life. And we've rehearsed such stuff for, for days and days and days. And went in and played it being terrified every minute. Mm. So, like, people in Mingus's band were terrified. But of him, we were terrified of the music. He <laughs> <Right. laughs> wasn't John. He was... He's a he's a cupcake, no matter what anybody thinks, you know, whatever image he might have put across. But, you know, we were rehearsing for days to play the stuff that was next to impossible. And then we would get like twelve dollars, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, I think I better keep playing this ragtime and stuff and, and being a finger picker. And, and I could just about make a living doing that, mm. which so- is ironic. So it was. <laughs> John was like a huge star, right? right? So it was like um, the 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 more inside stuff, the more traditional stuff paid the bills, and the jazz was something you did for pleasure. Well, I've always been living right on the poverty edge, right? You know, and I'm not a good businessman. I mean, I, I you know I'm doing a big mailing today, emailing thing because I'm starting a Patreon page, right? 
people can who feel like supporting me in some way can go to that page. So see there, I, I did remember to say something about that. Oh, well, uh, I usually do. We will actually talk about it at the end to make sure that people are aware of it. But yeah, go on. Uh, in fact, Stefan Grossman, who was the guy that, that ran the, the straight, straight, well, the finger picking mm-hmm. thing. I, I, my first five records were on a label called Kicking Mule, which was founded basically by Stefan Grossman, who is a person, you know, well known in the ragtime blues guitar world. And it was a, even more of a dynamo than, uh, than Eugene. You know, he, he would organize tours for people on the label. He would uh, put out their records. He would write books, half the time using our arrangements without bothering to tell us, which is fine because it was just pennies. You know? And, you know, the fact that we, people were learning our arrangements was good for us. I don't want to make it sound like he was uh, being exploitative because it wasn't like that. But so he wanted me to record for that label. And one of the best things he ever said to me, he said, don't imagine that now that you're a recording artist and the folk world is going to suddenly change your life. He says, it's a nickel and dime business. He said, you'll make a little bit from records. You'll make more from selling your records at your gigs. You'll make some from gigs if you like to teach, which I always did. Mm. Keep doing that. And so on. Writing articles. Well, I did that mostly just for the records. Mm-hmm. In fact, both Eugene and I were writing reviews for Coda Magazine at the time we met. Right. So how did you, when did you get to England? I mean, I know you didn't just arrive and then stay. You, you've been back and forth. But when was the first trip to England? And what was that like when you connected with those folks for the first time? Right. Well, so the deal was Stefan was organizing these tours. And mm-hmm. I was just this young guy. Uh, at that point, I was kind of, well, I was going to have to move back to Vermont. Virginia after I split up with my wife, but I spent several months in Boulder, Colorado. But so after and I, I met this woman in Minneapolis, lived there for one winter. That was enough for me. I said, this is too much for my cracker ass, 30 below or whatever. You, um, right. you, were, you went to Minneapolis and it was freezing. <laughs> so we moved to Philadelphia. Right. And my partner at that time, uh, was a, was a dancer. She took a, a job at Temple University. Uh, but then by that time, see, I had started touring, doing these kicking mule tours in England, and not just England, but Stefan set up tours where I went with him or on my own to Switzerland and to Belgium and to Denmark and Sweden, I guess. Oh, in France. Mm. So I was much more excited by that than I was by Philadelphia. And uh, Mary wanted to study Alexander technique, if you know what that is. I do, I do. That's something that a lot of dancers wind up doing after, in their mid-30s, they've injured themselves enough time that they can't just keep doing good. Yeah, yeah, it helps with your posture and your, your, yeah, yeah, all of that, yeah. Yeah, Too bad I didn't keep doing it, I'd have a lot less problems, but anyway... (laughs) So we then decided to move to, to uh, London, and we did that in 1978, I guess. Though I was going back and forth quite a bit. Now I was just coming back and doing like a couple of cross-country tours uh, in the States each year, driving along, mm. uh, you know, and stopping in places like like uh, Boulder, Colorado, where I had, you know, met people and stuff. Iowa City was another place like that. And so anyway, there we were. We were in London, and I wound up staying there until, I think, 1982. 
Uh, so it was like four or five years. And so, yeah, uh, I would be like almost literally going to see Derek in the afternoon and then that night going and hearing traditional live Irish music because there was a hello scene for Irish music mm. in London in those days. A lot of players that, you know, are sort of legendary because there was such a large uh, population of Irish Irish people came over to London looking for work, just like they went to America looking for work. And uh, that was very exciting. Lots of fun. So you um you were there in London, you were you were sort of had feet in two scenes really, um, or you know, were interested in music that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily put together. Is that yeah. have you found that um what would you say to someone who who thinks that's a difficult thing to do to kind of you know, have a bluegrass head and an out jazz head. What would you say to someone who? Well, people who are into free music, of course, have very big ears, right? Um, and so, I have to, well, you know, you wouldn't find that many that, for instance, got way into Irish music, but they would all, they wouldn't be shocked at all by the idea that one of them was playing something else, because most people playing free improv or free jazz can play other kinds of music, right? Uh, and they're into it. In fact, they're into any crazy sounding thing. You know, if they find something, oh, what's an example? Is I think Burmese court music is really weird, mm -hmm. or the gagaku music in Japan uh, sounds very strange to most people, but they like that because it sounds strange, mm. naturally. Yeah, now, Steve Beresford is the kind of guy, if you find somebody playing like a cheesy organ sound and doing, you know, with a something that sounds like the Boston Pops and a rock and roll rhythm section, he'd be thinking it's the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> so I guess I'd like to know a little bit more now about some of the collaborations that you've had. You've been really fortunate in your career, it seems to me, that you've we've talked about a couple of them already. You've just sort of crossed paths with people who were very influential in one world of music or another. Um and it seems to me, looking at your discography, you've had some really fruitful connections with certain people that have kind of, you know, blossomed in really, you know, fruitful ways. I'm thinking of, for example, Roswell Rudd. Could could you talk a little bit about that that partnership and and what that's meant to you and how that came about? When I left London, I wound up then uh, living in Italy for three years, and I didn't get back to the States at all during that time. I had gone down there with Stefan Grossman. And sort of, They had their folk acoustic music boom later than other countries. They, they, they say they're the coda, they're the tail. They always come along. They get into things five years after everybody else has been into it. Right. Well, that was good for me, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't connect with many Italian musicians or play jazz with them. I was still, ooh, like I said, I didn't come back for three years. But ultimately, then I moved. I decided it was time for me to 
get back to the States and in 1986 moved back to San Francisco. So then, of course, I picked up all the uh, connections I'd had there and in New York. And things were proceeding along, you know, with this touring around and this and that. But it was the next thing that happened that really sort of made a, a big difference in in, uh, in my performing possibilities with, with other musicians. Actually, I left one out. I did meet Mark Dresser in Italy. Oh, right, right, right. He was he was living in Rome for a year, and uh, we played a few bar gigs in in Turin before he got the the, the call from from Braxton. Right. So he definitely uh, took a step. Up. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> about that, but he, he he took a step out uh, or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the step. Well, step. Well, that was a step up for anybody. I mean, that was a great quartet. It was. I, I love that. Uh, I do love that quartet a lot. Yeah. And incredible. All of them. So I knew Mark and then we crossed paths again in New York in, uh, in the nineties when I was visiting there. And at some point, Oh, I didn't have a record company. So, um, I asked John if he would be interested in Zorn and if he'd be interested in, in uh, putting out a record of me playing my own tunes. Cause by that time I was writing a lot of tunes that could be played as jazz tunes, but when I played them, I tended to be very conservative for the solo improvisations. Cause that was a hard thing to do. And it's sort of like in the guitar world, they weren't, you know, jazz guitar was one thing, even if it was finger style. And I was still very much coming out of a, a folk uh, background uh, technically. And as far as how I conceive things, but if we want to talk about that, we'll come back to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a whole area in itself. But anyway, it was John at that point said, look, I didn't know that John Zorn always had to, it had to be his idea for you to do something. That's, that's a little unfair, but, but basically it's not like he's ever just said, you know, I, I want to go and just play a bunch of tunes. It had to be something that appealed to him. So he was the one that asked if I could do Herbie Nichols. Oh, really? And I thought, well, by this time we'd all been listening to Herbie Nichols for, when did I actually hear him? We read about Herbie Nichols in A.B. Spellman's book and Shep played Lady Sings the Blues on, on that great San Francisco record. But uh, it was hard to hear him. And I remember Bruce Ackley, who also plays in Roba, I used to see him a lot because he worked in a record store. And I walked in one day, and I can still see him holding up that Herbie Nichols uh, <laughs> blue note, the, the 12-inch that had yeah. come in with a big grin on his face. So we heard Herbie Nichols. And it was kind of addictive. Uh, it was more inside than I expected, but there was something about it that was really intriguing. So when John then many years later, see, that was back around 74 or so. And so like 20 years later now, John is saying, well, can you play Herbie Nichols on the guitar? And I thought, well, maybe I can. <laughs> uh, I've always wondered why jazz musicians don't play more of that guy. Right. And so I got some people to send me some charts, Ben Goldberg for one. Mm. Uh, oh, and then Bruce Ackley had some charts. Yeah, Ben had done some project with Herbie's music. And so then I got them, and, well, I found out why jazz musicians didn't play those tunes. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff is hard. <laughs> Luckily, I guess one of the first ones that I really started to see a way into, I mean, I was sure I could play Lady Sings the Blues, because by Herbie's standards, that's fairly straightforward. But as it happens, the, the, the third world... Mm -hmm. um, uh, lies on, over a couple of basic jazz 
uh, chord shapes. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, wow, this sounds good. Just playing, you know, the A part to that. Well, I did add in some some kind of twisted inner voicings. But when I saw that, that you could sound like Herbie Nichols without breaking your back, I thought, okay, well, I'm on to something. I mean, it did take me uh, like two years, very intense involvement. And it was because of that, I, I called Roswell with some trepidation since he had been a hero of mine. And he said, well, that's an interesting project. And he, he was glad to help in many ways. He may have also sent me some charts, but he was willing to talk to me about Herbie mm -hmm. almost at, at any length. Had he, um, had he himself uh, encountered Herbie, or had they crossed paths when he was younger? Oh, yeah. He, okay. was, he was like a disciple of Herbie's. Um, ah. If you can track down the, uh, the mosaic box of Herbie Nichols, Roswell's notes, going ah. through a lot. Ah, he, um, I did not know that he wrote the notes for that. That's interesting. We, yeah, they're very good. And he, <laughs> he referred to one time later, and apparently they were uh, greatly edited. Okay, so you um you hear uh, I'm sorry you were talking about um, Roswell and Herbie and, and the assistance he gave you there. Yeah, I mean it was it was very interesting and it's like it I don't know how you are as a writer, but if I'm going to review something, for instance, then I will want to find out everything I can about it. I want to know three times at least as much as as I need. And then, then it just makes it easier. Right. Um, well, so he, yeah. he performed that for me. Like, you know, a portrait of Ucha. I said, so what is, what is Ucha? He said, Ucha was a really crazy lady. He said, uh, and I don't think Herbie ever got over Ucha. Hmm. Well, that takes you somewhere. Sure. And then, even a, a, to the point like I thought, well, this is a little Mexican guitar. Maybe I can play this thing on that. So I used a, a funny little Requinta guitar that I paid about 50 bucks for <laughs> <laughs> on that track. I wish I still had that guitar because it, it was really a good guitar for that. I don't know what happened to it. So, and then another time, for instance, I, <laughs> I called him. I said, Ross, what had happened was that I had done so much Herbie Nichols that I had just, I had it coming out of my ears. You know, I wasn't thinking about anything else. I said, I need to get away. And so I had a project that I've been meaning to do for a long time, which was I had the Jelly Roll Morton Library of Congress recordings of all those interviews he did with uh, Lomax. Oh, yeah. And so I played all the records and put them on cassettes. And I wasn't very far along when I started going crazy. Kind of, it all sounded like Herbie Nichols to me at that point. <laughs> and so I called Roswell. I said, Ros, I think I'm losing my mind with this. And he said, well, what happened? I said, well, uh, you know, I, I thought I'd get away from Herbie just to, you know, get my mind free for it. And so I was listening to Jelly Roll Morton, and I kept hearing Herbie. And he said, well, which Jelly Roll Morton? I said, the Library of Congress. Oh, he said, oh, Herbie made a real study of that. 
Mm. So, you know, I was, I was, it was the best thing except for talking to Herbie Nichols to, to be able to, uh, I don't think I could have made that record actually without, without Russell sort of in my corner. Right. And then he later became a, a collaborator, someone who you recorded with. Yeah. He, you know, we've gotten to know each other by telephone. And at some point, uh, he came out to San Francisco. He did a tour with a tenor player who was living in Portland at that time named Rob Sheps. A very good player. Um, and he had a nice band. And Roswell fit in real well. So they came to San Francisco, and I went and introduced myself and uh, took my copy of Eli's Chosen Six and asked him to uh, autograph it. Mm. You know you know that band? <laughs> no, Dixieland? I, no, I do not. Oh, see, he was in a Dixieland band that was uh, formed from Yale students. And oh, that's why they were called and e- by the Eli's color Eli. Chosen yeah, yeah, Six. Yeah. And they they appear in that famous movie, Jazz on a Summer Day. Oh, my goodness. Wow. (laughs) That's so. So you got to meet him and then he said, let's let's play. Yeah, he did. He invited me to come and uh, maybe we could do some things together. Well, you know, I was over the moon. This is the thing where you got the younger musician finally being asked to play with somebody that they idolized because I did. Was that is that hard? Um, I mean, what's it like when you when you enter the room with that person and you're now gonna you know play together? Well, I, I well I don't think that it, I think it's gonna be different in every case. Because Roswell was a particular kind of human being, very very warm uh, and very very good at communicating. Uh, and with a great sense of humor and, and so on. And so that, for instance, when, uh, I guess it was a little bit, I'm, I don't know at what point, but I said, yeah, I'm working out, I'm trying to get a, uh, a line on on this or that. Uh, Jackieing by Monk mm-hmm. uh, was one time, and, and Off Minor by Monk was another time, where we'd be playing and I'd try a chord, and he'd walk over to the piano and he'd play like three notes, four notes, and say, this this is the sound you want. And so I'd come up, I remember what the thing was on jacking and I think on off minor, and it was just something you would never think of. It was just a strange combination of notes. Do you remember jacking? I, um, I, I know the name and, you know, if I heard it, I would recognize it, but I don't, I, I couldn't hum the melody. Off yeah, the top well, of that's my the head. way it is with, still with most of Monk's tunes for me, but it's like, da 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 Ba, 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 ba. And it's got that funny little chord that he throws in as an accent. And that's the that's one of the ones I'm thinking of. Okay. Um, so it was like that. And then, you know, we'd try some things that wouldn't work. What's funny is I mean, I've got a I've got a rehearsal tape of us from like two days before the gig that we did at at Tani. Which, uh, you know, is the source of about half of, uh, there was two real good gigs that were recorded very well. And those are the things that were the source for almost everything we recorded together. Mm. Well, for 80% of it anyway. Right. And, uh, I mean, this rehearsal, we didn't have anything to get. <laughs> hmm. And finally, when we were doing the rehearsal, because he, he was dead set on, he wanted to do this thing with me where it was all based on quotes. Oh, wow. And... Uh, it just didn't. I finally just said, say, "Look, Roz, is the idea that that we're sort of doing a free improvisation, and then we latch into the quotes as they come along?" And he said, "Yeah, just do that." And so that freed me up. 
So, I mean, it was night and day between the rehearsal and, and the first gig. So you thought at first he meant just play quotes. Well, I thought he wanted more of that right. um, than, than was necessary. Because what happens, and this was a little bit similar to the, to the thing with John, uh, these people are directing you to think about something while the music is going on, and your mind will freeze because you're trying to do something and listen and think at the same time. Right. John's thing was much more intensely like that, and that, I sort of explained why in the in the notes to fencing. But with with Roswell, it was plenty difficult to to do that particular thing. Right. And then you know we had a fair amount of stuff worked out. But I guess just one of no, I've got two of Herbie's tunes and, and uh, probably four or five of Monk's tunes. All right. You've got a disc that you shared with me called Duck's Palace. And, yeah. And um, that's one. Now, am, am I understanding this right? It's it's a quintet, but recorded. No, no, no. no or no, that's no. just you with different people at different times. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's the only recording, well, the only uh, recording that will ever be released. Well, that's not quite true. It, it's the only time where I played with John and Sarah Baptista was there. So that's one trio. Right. And then there's two of the, the, the first of the things that was released by well, me and Roswell from the tonic was, was on that CD. Gotcha. Okay. And then there's uh, another, oh, and me and Derek. Right. Now that was interesting too, because anytime I went to see Derek, and there's probably maybe a half dozen visits spread out over the years, and when I got there, the first thing he wanted to do was 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 play some together. Hmm. Um, and so we would take out our guitars and play, and then we just sit around and talk. And then, then really, the last time I did that, he said, "Oh, let's record it this time." And so we did, and that's the only reason there's any recordings of Derek and I because he got his, you know, he started to have. What do we call it? Well, we call it Lou Gehrig's disease, right. um, motor neuron disease. They call it over here. I don't remember. It's kind of sclerosis, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a article in the paper about some uh, football player who's just no. been diagnosed recently. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's. I think they call it motor neuron. I think that's right. That's yeah. what they call it here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There's some you can remember. Anyway. So that's why I had all those things. Um, I, the thing with John, I had a gig at Knitting Factory in New York, and John said, "Well, let's play some stuff together, and we'll get this guy Ciro. He's uh, you know Brazilian percussionist, and he'll play too." We did record, I think, at least one, maybe two straight tunes. Maybe it was just one, uh, but it didn't come out very well. I mean, it was all right, but it didn't really shine. And so we had those two improvs, which I thought were great. The mm-hmm. things with John, I like playing with John, and I push him pretty hard. <laughs> which, uh... sort of different from some of the guitar players. My God, he's played with every guitar player under the sun. Right. But anyway, the reason for that record, you know, Karen Brookman, uh, Derek's widow, was 
I more than 20 years younger than him, I think. Really wonderful woman, Welsh, great sense of humor. And she and Derek were, were a real love match. And of course, when he died, it, it really did. She was devastated. And uh, it took a fair amount of time for her to come back around out of that. Uh, and when she did, then she wanted to do some things with Incas Records again, Derek's label. And so I, I don't remember if she asked. I probably asked her. And she said, yeah, we could use those things with Derek and then these other things that would fit great you know, if you can get permission. And, of course, that wasn't, that wasn't hard at all. When she was relaunching the label with that and, I guess, a couple of other titles, and so she set up a, a festival, a weekend of uh, musicians playing at the Cafe Auto in London. And so that was where I made the recordings with on uh, confabulations with Steve Beresford and with um, John Butcher. I like that disc a lot. Um, I thought that was, I thought that was a lot of fun. And you, you said playing with Butcher was terrifying. No, it, oh. it wasn't so much. You know who terrified me to play with, and I don't have any good recordings with, of me with him is Lil Coxill because oh. it, it was just uh, he oh, and playing with Derek was definitely terrifying. <laughs> Anybody will tell you that. Right. You, you, and what I'll tell you the weirdest thing about that duo with Derek is that there are times on there where I can't tell who's playing what. Hmm. Uh, and if I can't tell, I don't know how anybody else can. But it's when John started to play and we just started, I guess I played for a little while and then he came in. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing just seemed to go. It was just, it went just like magic. I, I still think that's one of the best free things I've ever done. Mm -hmm. It's it's what you want to have happen anytime you play free improvised music. What I said probably was that I would be, I know what I said. I said I'd be scared to ever play with him again. Ah, that was what it was. That was on the liner notes. And that's, and that's what I'm remembering. So it was one of those cases where you, you, you walk into a room and you play with a guy and you just have that kind of instant magic, whatever chemistry. You're just both having a good, good day together. Yeah, well, you know, we 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 had met, right? Um, but we had never certainly never played together, and but it was one of the things that that Karen decided she wanted to see happen. Uh, she invited me to form a band, and that was the first. Uh, in oh, I come to think of it, that must have been even before I had the trio with with Joe Williamson and Alex. No, it's no, I would have known Alex. So I guess we Joe was probably away. And so that's why Simon Fell played uh, with me on that weekend. There's recordings of that quartet and Steve Noble on drums. But who knows if they'll ever get released. Uh, some of it is pretty good. The, the, the balance not great. Right. But that is where the recording with Steve was done. I mean, Steve and I had played together a few times. It always seemed to 
for some reason it always worked. Piano and guitar, I think, is one of the hardest combinations there is. Uh, why is that? Well, it's hard not in the first place. It's you know the guitar, it, the balance is difficult, and the guitar will just get lost in there. Uh, the piano players can play enough, make their chords plenty full without the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, free music is a little bit different, but it it is a tricky tricky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny because in jazz, of course. It was more common to have a guitar, bass, piano trio, right, for a long time. And I guess Bud Powell must have been one of the first people that was having a trio with drums and bass, hmm. just as well. I don't know what the fuck a, a guitar player could possibly do, right? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, you've done a cup. You've done a couple of discs where you've you know kind of done you know tributes or and that's not the right word. You've just you've played someone's music. I mean, so. On the podcast, we've talked about uh, both the the uh, Herbie Nichols disc, and I believe we also talked about the the Monk disc, which we you know thought was fantastic. And you do uh, Monk certainly he he gets you get a lot of different people you know playing his stuff, even guitar players. I think we did um, we did a review of Bobby Broom playing Monk. If I have, I think I have that right, um, um, but. You, there certainly haven't been a lot of people who've who've done a whole kind of album of Herbie Nichols music. Are you aware of anyone since you did uh, Spinning Song who who's who's sort of followed in your footsteps? And oh, hey. not not as a solo guitar thing. Of course, you know the, the other guy that did Monk notably on on solo guitar is that Miles. Oh, I can't remember his name. It's a Japanese name, but. Uh, I, I can find it for you if you haven't heard that. I mean, that's a, he did a hell of a job because he played all of Monk's tunes, but he played a lot of them sort of briefly. He didn't really blow on them. Mm-hmm. That's what takes me the most time anyway. Right. Uh, but that guy did do a hell of a job. Mm. Uh, I was my my Monk record. The biggest difference between that one and the Herbie Nichols uh, is that I was doing a lot more improvising on the Monk's thing. I was, you know, they're longer tracks, right? And and I'm going on and uh, and there's an awful lot of alternates to that, which I'll have to figure out a way to put out. I I do want to put out a CD version of that, and I'll add probably get almost a half hour extra material on a CD, but I'll still have enough. <laughs> for, for some future project, sure, so, sure. Yeah, so, yeah, there was that was one of my best studio experiences ever, mm. for whatever reason. Um, and I mean, part of it was that I wanted to do a Monk record as soon as I had done Herbie Nichols. But like with John, by that time, the idea of doing a Monk record, oh, everybody's doing that, right, right. Uh, whereas Herbie Nichols, no, no other. I mean, Howard Alden of all people has done some things, but not solo, I don't think. Mm. Yeah. I, I know a little bit of his music, but I did not know he had taken on Herbie Nichols. So, yeah. Um, I think part of the reason we like that disc so much is that we we are huge fanboys of Love, Gloom, Cash, Love, wow. um, one of the greatest greatest jazz albums ever recorded. Uh, it, it just um, an amazing album. And I think we also talked about the third world on a podcast um, at one point, um, that compilation, you know, of all of his stuff. So, yeah. And then when, uh, you know, Pat found your your uh, music, 
he's like, we got to do this. And I, and I heard it and we were like, oh my God, this, <laughs> that just scratched all kinds of itches for us. We really like that disc. You, uh, I've noticed, I mean, you, you kind of are one of these, um, would you consider yourself an elder statesman at this point? Well, it must be. All I right. Mean, uh, you're, I'm, you're, I'm, I'm handicapped. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're, you're one of these elder statesmen who's really sort of kind of taken charge in a way of curating his own back catalog it, it seems oh, yeah. to me yeah, yeah. um can you talk a little bit about that and and you know what 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 kind of uh work that entails um well, it's funny isn't it because I, I just thinking about it it that must have started really when i uh, was working with uh, the triple point guys ben young who uh has written a lot of notes and done all kinds of things he's he records things real well and he used to be on that radio station whatever it's called up the one out of columbia um columbia university mm-hmm. i met him through roswell actually mm-hmm. we met at roswell's 65th birthday which was quite an event and i wound up sitting there talking for the most part with with ben young and paul haynes i'm, I'm sure glad i got to know paul slightly you remember who he was? He was the guy that broke the, the libretto for Escalator Over the Hill. Oh, my gosh. Pat's, that's just about his favorite Carla Blay album. You just, music to his ears. Yeah. <laughs> well, Paul was quite a character and very well loved by that whole generation of, of musicians. And he, uh, yeah, like one thing he did was he was always sending people cassettes with all kinds of weird crap on it. Mm-hmm. And so I got to be on his email list and getting cassettes. I don't know what happened to them. Though. But anyway, so I was sitting there talking with Paul, the delightful character that he was, and Ben Young. And we just had a great, great time at that event and kept in touch. And then when they decided uh, that they wanted to pick up my Monk record, because by that time I had gone ahead and recorded it, even though I didn't have any place in mind to put it out, and so I was then learning how to to, to do minor edits and things, um, you know, where I left an ending or something like that, or I like this solo, but that first hit and then that second hit, which, oh, though it's not widely advertised, jazz musicians have always done that. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot easier now. And mm-hmm. at some point, Joe said, you know, you don't have to tell me where to do these things. You can just do them yourself. The ones that you're putting together sound exactly the same as the ones you're telling me to do. This was Joe Litzy, who is, uh, Litzy, I guess is how he says, who is Ben's partner. And I mean, those guys have really helped me in, in all kinds of ways. Because to this day, uh, I guess that I said, you know, you don't have to pay me the advance you're trying to pay me if you'll help me with all these other projects. I mean, the fact that they pay in advance at all is sort of amazing. Right. So I did get an advance from Dot Time, which is another nice thing. <laughs> mm. uh, Joe Litzy uh, is it was the um, uh, engineer on the on the Monk album. Is that right? Well, he he did the mastering and all that right. kind of stuff. Right. Uh, it was recorded at, at a, uh, a folky kind of guitar player named Doug Doug McKenzie, who is a guy that didn't have a career with it, but would have been good enough to. But he had a family and uh, figured he'd never make enough money, and he probably would have been right. Right. Uh, you know, but a guy who plays a uh, pretty good finger style guitar himself. And he just kept inviting me because we were friends, and he wanted me to come down and, and do this recordings. And he lived in the Raleigh Durham area, area mm-hmm. of Raleigh, I guess. And so I went down, spent a few days with him, and, and did that. 
Um, and and then so I had most of the recording, and then that's when I got involved with Ben and Joe, and then I went to Italy and, and finished up. Uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe it was just two tracks: Jagging and Bemsha's Swing. Maybe that's all I did. Right, and then uh, you've become one of these folks who you know is kind of curating in a way your own career. You you've got a website up, and you you kind of got lots and lots of for people who don't know just how many things you've recorded and how many albums are available you you your website is an amazing resource <laughs> for your stuff and a lot of your music is available there and what's important i, I guess i want to mention and i think it's really important to know is you have the a lot of the out stuff and the jazz stuff we've been talking about but you know you have all these other things that we haven't been talking about as much, um, including soundtracks and um, you know, you know, fingerstyle guitar. You know, some of your earlier stuff on Kicking Mule is available there, and on and on and on. I mean, um, yeah. it, you, you sort of the full range of of your interests is is there, and um, that must be. I don't know. Is is it a challenge or? Is it rewarding or, you know, what is it like to kind of look back across a career and be able to kind of make this stuff available? And, and I guess you have even more stuff that you want to make available. That, oh, God. I mean, I've got at least 10 more CDs, including one major project um, that I recorded a long time before I recorded the Monk thing, which was me playing jazz versions of folk songs, which seemed like a natural. Right. And I, I decided that I wanted to do sort of different approaches from very free things to, well, that version of Shenandoah mm -hmm. is from that, that project. And I've, I've recorded that with several other people, uh, with Mark, but also with, oh, someday the, the first trio that I had uh, performed with and got other people to say, okay, we're going to play my stuff. I'm going to lead a trio was with Ben, ben Gold. Goldberg, great right. clarinet player in the Bay Area. And at that time, Carl Kilstock, a wonderful violinist, was living out there. Right. And we rehearsed a fair bit and then only played two gigs, but both of them were recorded. And some of that is, some of the best parts of it have yet to come out. I'll have to figure out what to do with that. But that that, that trio is heard on some of those records I put out, which one? Shades of Blue, I guess. Anyway, yeah, I've got all these recordings. I'm not, I can't, you know, I've got these physical problems now, uh, and it's so hard to get around um, that touring doesn't hold much allure for me. But I've already got enough recordings that, you know, I want to put out, and I'm always finding more stuff. Somebody, for instance, Leslie Delaba, who's a trumpet player, used to play with Zorn and those people, and Eugene. And she sent me a tape that had a couple of great duos of me with Eugene back in 1978 or 79, whichever it was. And so, you know, I'm still finding other things 
Mark Dressler sent me a note the other day. He said, you know, we did some other stuff on on besides the stuff that I put out on Confabulations, where he's playing, where we played the Third World. So I've got a solo of Mark Dresser uh, on the Third World, which is very interesting. <laughs> actually. Yeah. So, so all this stuff is there. Now the point is, one point I will make for your listeners is, um, if you have a hard time finding a recording by a musician you know that's still alive, look at their website. It's a very good chance that they'll sell it to you for less than you can find it on Amazon, and then you'll cut out the middleman, and it'll work better for the musician and work better for you. And my website is a real good example of that because I, I, I sort of can't outgrow the idea that these things should be on a physical form, and sometimes you can just do duplicated CDs of things that are not going to sell very much. But... You know, you can sell them as MP3s very easily, and you can sell them as CDs or even records when you've got the vinyl. And so I'm doing a lot of that. That's where most of my energy is now. And right now, I'm launching a new Patreon page where I'm going to spend an awful lot of time. So I won't have to get in arguments like I do on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, let's... uh let um i still want to talk more about the the website because i i i think it's amazing what you've done but um yeah let's go ahead and mention the patreon we'll mention it again at the very end um the patreon uh page how do folks get to that and what can they expect when they get there well it's it, you know it's duckbaker.com to be honest i did, i i could never figure out how to engage with people in a direct way the way that the patreon page will be uh to a greater extent but it is where i you know, I've got my discography there. I've also got a lot of my arrangements written out, and people can can buy those if they're guitarists that that want to see how I play things. But it's mostly, you know, for for my recordings. Which I mean, I'm not sure how many I've got available there now, but it, it may be forty or so, I guess. Uh, and as you say, it goes from all my kicking mule things. Though there's one title I'm getting low on. Uh, but all those are there. Other recordings that I've put out in recent years, like I think I give you a copy of the one called Not the First Time. Yeah. And and that's a continuation because by the time I had finished recording for Kicking Mule, I was writing a lot. And some of the what I was writing was still kind of a folky style or even ragtime tunes, but some of it was more jazz tunes. And so then, you know, like for instance, most of I did about four solo CDs in the 90s that were mostly my own tunes. Um, and most of those were, I think the way I described it, was somewhere on the blues to jazz continuum. Right. But the idea is anybody that, I think most of the people that are Duck Baker fans are probably fans of that aspect, you know, my finger style stuff. Some would say they prefer the way I do just finger picking, like mm-hmm. blues, ragtime, gospel, etc. Other people would say they like the way I do what they call Celtic music, which I call Irish music or Scottish music, as the case may be. I think the Celtic term is very misleading, but, you know, that's what the marketplace has determined is going to be called. And so they'll say that's what they like me doing. And so I've got a lot of, so well, not a lot. I guess I've done just a couple of solo records devoted to that, but also there's a couple of records with Irish musicians where I'm playing that music. Um, that was interesting too, for instance. I mean, I, I started playing in a band. We started a band called the Expatriate Game, <laughs> uh, 
which is another because <laughs> there's a famous song uh, by Dominic Bean called The Patriot Game, uh, which Dylan covered. Barb, you know, he sort of rewrote the words, but used the tune on one of his early records. Oh, I can't remember what he called it, but uh, it's the thing about with God on our side. The country I come from has God on our side. That was from Dominic Bean. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we, since I was an expatriate, Maggie, who's London Irish, her parents... Uh, you know, she was an expatriate family. They moved over, I guess, just before she was born uh, from Donegal. And then Ben Paley, his father, was a very famous American folk musician named Tom Paley, who played in the New Los City Ramblers. Ben plays fiddle, mostly. And uh, so we were doing traditional Irish and American stuff. And it was a very interesting group to play in, not least because Maggie was very insistent about playing the Irish tunes, not with a swing rhythm, but with something subtly different. And it was always, there was rhythmic tension in the group because of that. Mm. Uh, Rhythmic tension in a group does not bother jazz musicians. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You'll hear bass players and drummers talking about, well, you sit on the back of the beat and I'll be on the front of the beat typically the bass player holding it back and the drummer pushing a little, but not necessarily. That's a big thing. Right. Big discussion in jazz. And so we had that, though Maggie wasn't uh, necessarily pleased by the fact. So I had to work very hard on trying to go to where she was rhythmically. And that was certainly extremely instructive. Right. You have all kinds of other things on this website. It's worth pointing out. I mean, besides your solo stuff and your leader dates, you've got, uh, which I haven't had a chance to listen to yet, you've got stuff as a composer. You've got anthologies of this finger-picking music. But even more interestingly, you've got books available and instructional videos for people who want to know how to do this stuff. You know, well, if you want to know how to play the music of Thelonious Monk, Duck Baker can show you. (laughs) well, I mean, I've got now. I should I should be clear that when right. I've listed all those things, like the the records that are anthologies mm-hmm. and the teaching things and the books, I don't sell all of that on the on the website. Uh, I have some PDFs, okay, of a lot of my recent things because the, this was the other thing. See, when I started out kicking mule records, uh, Stephen Grossman had was always doing books, and so he made us write out what's called tablature, guitar tablature. Not the music, because the folkies wouldn't know how to read music. <laughs> uh, so in those days, I had to learn how to write tab music. With, well, tab. I mean, the Lute players were used to this idea of, of tablature hundreds of years ago. And it's basically just a little diagram to say you have your, your second finger on the fifth fret of the fourth string. Right. And that kind of thing. So you can figure out the hand positions. And, you know, it moves horizontally in a way that's comparable to music. Or it is, in many cases, it is better notated tab, will have like quarter notes, half notes, and so on indicated. Uh, and as time went on, I got used to doing it with music as well. I can write music much better than I can read it. Hmm. Uh, sort of the opposite of me when I speak Italian. I can, I can read it a lot better than I can write it, and I can speak it better than either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that part's the same anyway. But I should... Go back to something that you mentioned, which is the compositions, because I like to write so much. At some point, I started writing the tunes a whole lot faster than I could learn to play them, mm. especially some of the tunes I've written. I, I don't feel like I've ever played them right, even 20 years after the fact. But I have a, a sort of patron in, in Italy who is a very interesting person to know because 
He's, he's a wealthy person who, who runs a big company down there, and he would conform very much to an American's idea of what an Italian aristocrat of the 18th or 19th century was like, somebody who is very cultivated, who speaks several languages. And in this guy's case, he runs his company in a way that his, as he says, he's a capitalist, but he doesn't envision himself making himself rich. He's hmm. trying to, you know, help not just himself, but everybody that works for his, his company, uh, which is called Max Mara, if you're, if you're curious. Your wife will probably know what Max Mara is. Hmm. It's a fashion company. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Well, she might not, but I mean, uh, my daughter sure knew who it was, and she thought it was amazing that her slob father was being uh, <laughs> promoted <laughs> by this fellow. Yeah. So he he then sort of to support me, he asked me to write tunes, and I came back with about a hundred over a period of two years. Well, I can't learn the tunes that fast, so we did do a project where he had uh, several Italian guitar players that interpret the tunes and play the tunes, including a very good jazz guitarist named Michele Calgaro. The other guy were more like folky guitars. And at this point, there's an English guitarist who can seemingly play everything, but he's basically coming out of folk. He's working on a recording of a lot of my tunes that have never come out, not just the ones that I wrote for that Italian. That's the commission. But, I mean, I wrote... 100 tunes, and to date, about 20, maybe 30 have been re recorded by me or other people, and right. or other people. So I'm trying to also, I'm also trying to compile another uh, anthology as well. love it if more guitarists or other people would play my tune. Bruce Ackley, uh, that uh, soprano sax player from Rova, did record a tune of mine on his one solo record, which sounded real nice. He had, uh, gosh, I can't remember, it was Joey Barron that played drums on that, but it was Greg Cohen who played bass, so that was nice to hear. Yeah, it's a nice rhythm section. So yeah. um, let's talk about the Patreon. Yeah. Well, this is just going to happen. I'm getting ready to do a big mailing, and Patreon is just a way, like, if people think, ah, I'm really interested in this guy, and it sounds like he's got all these other projects to do. Well, you know, the thing that's making it hard to release the projects is that I don't make any money on them when they come out. They hopefully pay for themselves, but it's a very long process. And if I could get support from people on this Patreon, it's sort of like an ongoing Go fund me, right? To think because people want him to. I think Doug Baker is cool. I'll give him five dollars a month or whatever it is. Or I'm I'm rich and uh, rather than buy a, uh, my fiftieth guitar, I'll give Doug Baker thirty dollars a month or twenty. I can't remember what or fifty dollars a month. Wouldn't take many at that rate before I could put out this month CD. And I mean, there's a long list of projects that that I want to get out that I already have the recordings, but just need to get out there. So that's 
that's my hope on Patreon. I'm going to try to make it interesting for people and put, for instance, MP3s of things that won't be released for one reason or another, say, usually because the sound is not good enough or I uh, just don't see a way to make it fit anywhere else. Or in some cases, the guitar is slightly out of tune, but not too bad, but too bad to put on a CD. And, you know, I also want to tell stories about some of these musicians I've worked with. I'm not going to tell all. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's certain things that, that if somebody's a big fan of somebody, you don't want to tell them things that are just going to turn them off. Right. Uh, so not negative stories, but funny stories. Sure. I may tell about what it was like to work with Leo Kotke, but with Leo, see, is a delightful person to know, and if you've ever seen him perform, what you see is what you get. Mm. He's a character, and he's really funny. And he is just exactly like you would imagine him to be. So there's not many stories there. I, I'll, I'll probably tell some of the stories from, well, there's no story to tell about touring with Bert Jans because he almost never said anything. <laughs> uh, but there are a couple of funny stories about him. But John Renborn is the person I tour with a lot. And I, I have some very interesting stories about John. All right. So that, that site is not up yet, but when it oh, is... It's, it's up, but I just haven't... I'm going to do a mailing, probably, but I'm sure by the time this t- interview airs, it'll it'll be up and running. Okay. So so that's patreon.com slash duckpager, and the other one is duckbaker.com. Always the, the resources, duckbaker.com for all things Duck Baker. Cool. Um, one other thing I should mention about duckbaker.com, which is obviously something that, that you discovered. Like, if somebody goes on and says, okay, look at all these records. The, on, on the discography site where you can go and see them all, on most of those records, I've also put like a lot of information, including in most cases, I think, the liner notes. Yeah. And the liner notes to one, for instance, there's a record you would probably get a kick out of this if you read the one that I called that. Plymouth Rock, I think I called that, which was uh, an assortment of the early Huckbecker folky finger-picking thing. But it has a great story about about the death of my car in New York City when John Zorn and I were driving around. That's a really <laughs> funny story. <laughs> and that was too long to even put into the notes on the records. The, you can see that on, on the discography, even if you don't want to buy the record. It, it's a good story. I was going to say... Just, just for the record here, you you shared a lot of music with me, and I'm still making my way through it. Um, the, la- <laughs> yeah. the last thing I was listening to was "Everything That Rises Must Must Converge," a title that you shamelessly pillaged from Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> Could you just say a little bit here about uh, titling? I mean, because, um, like, for example, on Confabulations, which I really like that disc, you've got some really clever titles and i think sometimes um fans would like to know you know beyond just you know jazz a jazz person naming their disc for their beloved or their children or turning a word around backwards where where do titles come from and you've got some terrific ones for instance on on that album like could you talk a little bit about the missing chandler Thank you. 
Well, you see, there you go. That, my, my titles are very often too clever for people to catch. The Missing Chandler, that's the one with me and, and John Butcher. So if you have a butcher and a baker, the only thing that's missing is a candlestick maker, and Chandler is a, is a word for somebody who makes candles and candlesticks. So for so. all the kids out there, it is not a Friends <laughs> reference. It is actually a reference to the... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, to, to Butcher and Baker uh, and the missing Chandler. One that's on there is Ode to Joe, J-O. Well, see, I thought I'd come up with a hip arrangement of Ode to Joy, because everybody likes strong melodies. And this is like thinking of Bud Powell playing, what's the one he does? Heart and Soul. Right. Uh, it's not a well-known Bud Powell recording, but it's so hip to take that great little tune, bop, 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 and, and just put all these bebop chords into it. So with Ode to Joy, I wanted to make it hip. Well, when I introduce it, I say, well, you know, we're only three people playing it, so we couldn't do the whole score. So we left out every seventh beat. <laughs> so you go, instead of going, ba 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 da 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 you got to leave out a beat. ba 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 da 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 and so on so it's actually written with a bar of four and then a bar of three so it works out and so then of course i just took the letter y off of the title and it's ode to joe which has seven letters four and three i didn't know if yeah yeah that's kind of cool too how about um duo for 225 strings what's the story there I had to call Steve and say, well, it's a duo. How many strings are in a piano? I had put 88. He said, no, that's, you know better than that. Piano doesn't just have a string for every key. I said, so how many, how many strings are in there? And he said, well, I'll, I'll have to go and count. So, <laughs> so there's six strings on the guitar and all the rest are on the piano. <laughs> there are 219? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Um, and you told me something about Tour Billionaire. Explain that one. Well, yeah, that one is 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 blind luck. You're going along looking for titles uh, this way. So that was recorded uh, live at uh, the other great place for, for free jazz and, and music like that in London. These two places are within about a quarter of a mile of each other. One is Cafe Otto that I already remember already mentioned and where some of the stuff was recorded on that record that one was recorded at vortex which i've played at more often and so i was thinking well what am i going to do with this we got the uh, it was recorded at the vortex so you just go and look up synonyms on uh, whatever you put or whatever mm-hmm. and i piped in vortex and it came back with this word i'd never heard of called turbillion and that means a vortex so you got turbillion and air which means melody well it's not a melody but anyway so that's how you work two billionaire which of course nobody's ever going to catch right and it sounds like you know somehow to me when i first read it i was like i thought it was tour billionaire or something you know i mean i i I thought you'd broken the words in some different kind of well that was the idea in other words billionaire if you get tour billion and you're looking for a title <laughs> right. You've got to put air on the end. Yeah, then, then it's obvious it's going to be that. I mean, I've done this so often, and I mean, I, I put out a title of one of my serious jazz tunes that made it the title of the record, and the title is Opening the Eyes of Love. And I thought it was a great title. Nobody caught the meaning. It's a reference to the fact that love is blind. 
Uh, so opening the eyes of love. Nice. Which, uh, you make your references too good. Nobody will know what you're talking about. Well, <laughs> are we, we're all just misunderstood geniuses around here. Well, so. hopefully, <laughs> hopefully after this, you're a little bit less misunderstood. And for those of our listeners who you know liked what they heard when we were talking about spinning song or. Um, uh, the music of Monk. Dig into uh, Duck Baker's stuff. The ones I've listened to so far, I, I I really like Confabulations. And what was the other one? Let me dig this up. Um, um, I'll pull it up here because you know I'm real f- comfortable. I like the sort of abstract stuff. The guitar trio in Calgary. You know that that's right in my wheelhouse. I really like that stuff, but. There was one, uh, oh, I think it was Outside. Oh, was yeah, that's that? another one. Yeah. No, that was the Free Improv. Oh, there's the Clear Blue Sky. That's what it was, the Clear Blue Sky. Um, that, that's delightful. I thought that was really enjoyable. And maybe the kind of thing that, you know, if someone knows you from one point of view, they might think something different than they hear this. They well, wait a minute. This isn't Vortex or Shredding. This is, you know, this is... I, you know, this is inside almost, you know? Oh, it's definitely, I don't think there's anything outside. So that's the one I was talking about. That's one of four CDs that were ultimately put out by the label called Acoustic Music in Germany by Peter Finger runs that. And he's a very good fingerstyle guitarist, very good guitarist. And uh, one of the rare cases where you get somebody who's, well, I don't know if it's that rare, but it's unusual to find uh, musicians who are very good musicians who are also understand how to run a business and do it well. Uh, Stephen Grossman, I mentioned, uh, you know, there's a, there's a few others. I mean, Zorn does that, but he's got people who do all the work. Right, right. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, that record is, is, in other words, almost all my own tunes. I can't remember. I think Sua Reba is on there, which is a great tune that I got from uh, Salif Keita. Hmm. Uh, that and my version sounds a lot different from his, but it is the melody. He does so much fancy singing on top of it, you don't, almost don't notice the melody, which is being sung by the backup singer. But it, this is something I could talk about for, for a year. There's what makes a guitar instrumental is something I'm very interested in. John Renborn used to do a great uh, guitar instrumental of a tune called Sweet Potato, which he got from Booker T and the MGs. Hmm. You see... And this is something guitar players do. I mean, Chet Atkins, you know, you, you take any kind of tune and you make it a guitar tune. But how that works is something that I have a strong feeling about, but I can't quite put in words. Anyway, most of those are tunes that I wrote. And so I will say, you know, this is the blues to jazz continuum. Right. Um, the Clear Blue Sky is very much a jazz ballad. In fact, that's the one Bruce Ackley recorded. Um but I don't think I improvised at all on the version that's on their record. Um, and again, this is the problem. I would write that tune, and I would have written probably 10 tunes that year. That's a tune in G minor. It's not all that easy to play as a guitar solo and improvise, but it works fine just to play it straight. And so when I recorded it, because I just wanted to record the tune, make sure there was a record of it, that's what I did. Mm. Um, not even sure which other tunes are on that one. Um, uh, yeah, it's. Um, it, I just when I when I first played that, I was ready for, uh, you know, batting down the hatches, and then I was like, oh man, this is just 
this was not what I expected and was really enjoyable. So yeah, well, thanks. That, that was, that was a lot of fun. And I, I can't wait to um, dig into uh, more of this stuff. Uh, it's, Did you get a chance to listen? Because this one would go very well with what you were talking about titles. Deja Voodie. Oh, that's right. Um, I've seen, so I've, you know, I've read all of the liner notes because they are absolutely educational. Um, so I did read the liner note about Deja Booty um, and uh, um, the Duck Baker Trio album Deja Booty. That is uh, really funny, actually. Um, you want to tell that story? Well, that's a that's a joke that jazzers that are real jazzers will get because that's that's for Slim Gaylord, who is a, a character we all know and love. Some people get to him, as I probably did, via Charlie Parker, because Charlie Parker did a section with Slim Gala. But he was this character who could play very good guitar and piano reasonably well. And I, and drums not too bad. But he would talk a blue streak with all this hipster talk from the 40s and stuff. And uh, Foodie, or Fowdy, was, was one of his uh, favorite expressions. And so, you know, deja vu. I said, well, deja vuity is just a natural. That's, that, ha- that has to happen. So anyway, that, so that's what that one was about. I also got interested by the fact that the beboppers absolutely never played. They didn't have any bebop tunes that were in 3-4. They don't yeah. exist. Right. That's uh, that. You get Randy Weston, of course, who's kind of the jazz waltz king, but that was after bebop. Yeah. So I thought, I'm going to write some 3-4 bebop tunes. And, uh, and Deja Vudi is, is one of those based on Sweet Georgia Brown. Cool. But, I mean, to go back to your point, sorry, to, no sorry to jump around, but but when you're saying you really like uh, The Clear Blue Sky, I think for a lot of people, the ones that sort of followed me after the folk boom and were interested in fingerstyle guitar, and that's their main thing, usually people who, who do some playing, they, they associate me with that style that's there. That's me writing tunes that are like fingerstyle tunes that can be played with as much improvisation as somebody can put into them, or they can be played straight. Some of the tunes on there are like more folky than, than jazzy. But I, for instance, the reason that John Zorn thought I might be able to play Herbie Nichols is because he knew I did things like that. Right, right. And then when I continued to write, like the stuff that I've written for and played with the trio, that stuff is very much informed by uh, the work I did arranging Monk and arranging Herbie Nichols. So now that, that's going back into the, the sort of solo style. Right, right. I personally think that that style is one of the things I do best. In other words, as a composer of guitar music. Right. Well, like I said, I was a little surprised because I knew the other two discs we had covered in a podcast. And then I you know, sort of jumped, jumped into a lot of the more abstract stuff the earlier stuff and some of the later stuff. And, and I thought, okay, I, I kind of, I, I know where this is. I, I have a frame of reference for this from other um, outside uh, jazz guitar that I've listened to. And then suddenly the clear blue, clear blue sky came up and I was like, wait, what, you know, <laughs> what happened? And it was fine. It was just kind of a surprising, it was, it was a surprising turn in, 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 for my ears as I was listening. So yeah, I, again, I guess that, is again testimony or you know to the fact that you know you have a lot of strings to your bow and and you play a lot of different kinds of things really really well so thanks yeah it's a it's a career and a discography that um is well worth 
attending to and that I'm, I'm just really enjoying making my way through this stuff. So um, thanks for sharing so much of it with us. And, and thanks for coming on the podcast and being so, you know, funny and articulate and um, affable. It's, uh, it's great for our listeners to um, hear uh, people such as yourself who are uh, of a certain stature in the music at this point. Uh, who everyone kind of looks up to. It's kind of nice to hear folks talk about, you know, what they do and how they got where they got. So thank you for doing this. We really, really appreciate it. Well, I really like it. And when I listen to your podcast, I mean, I very much enjoy the fact that you guys are like guys basically love jazz, but you're listeners. You're, you're coming at it from, wow, this sounds great. And you're not doing just jazz, but you know, I'm not trying to play just for guitarists. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to play music that will elevate people's spirit one way or another, and it's real music, and I, I feel like I'm making a contribution, and I appreciate getting the chance to talk with people like you who just want to hear good music. And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 249. As always, you can reach us at pat at jazzbaster.com or mike at jazzbaster.com. You can drop me a line on Facebook or look me up on All About Jazz. The podcast can be streamed from All About Jazz, can be downloaded from Apple Podcasts, from Mixcloud, from Stitcher, from Spotify. And of course, you can download it from www.jazzbaster.com. Tune in next time as we do a 250th episode devoted to lists specifically talking about the canonic list of greatest jazz albums from 1 to 20, uh, kind of assembling our own based on consensus around the web, and then talking about the more interesting proposition of what fills in slots 21 to 40. And until next time, take care.